wisdom where we are applying biblical truth to everyday life. My name is Derek Brown, and I am here again today with Cliff McManus. We are both pastors and elders at Creekside Bible Church in Cupertino, California. We are professors at the Cornerstone Bible College and Seminary in Vallejo, California. And today we are going to talk about part two. We're going to be in part two of our topic on biblical counseling. Uh, But before we get to our topic, I want to point your attention to withallwisdom.org, where you will find a large and growing collection of written and audio resources across a variety of theological, practical, and social topics. And we want to help you grow in maturity, and and we want you to grow in Christ-like maturity, and we want to do that in a way that exalts divine wisdom, not our own wisdom. We want to rely upon God's wisdom in Scripture, and which is why we have titled this ministry With All Wisdom. It comes from Colossians 1.28, where Paul says, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And here's the goal, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So that's our goal. That is our goal with the this ministry. And with this uh, episode that we are going to now delve back into, part two of biblical counseling. And I want to pick up where we left off, Cliff, if you don't mind. I would like to ask you, where do you place biblical counseling in the broader scheme of Christian teaching? Yeah, I think I went to, I was privileged in the, I think it was the mid-90s, I was uh, invited to the annual national Nuthetic Biblical Counselors Conference, mm. and it was in Arkansas. I was at a church in Texas, and Jay Adams was actually there as one of the featured speakers. It was excellent, as was Steve Viers, who's been very influential in that movement for decades. And Steve Viers uh, was one of the main speakers, and he gave an illustration of, to answer your question, where does biblical counseling fit in the ministry of the local church in the life of a Christian? And he said it's not uh, supposed to be the norm because when you're doing biblical counseling, that means you're dealing with people who have special problems or mm-hmm. unique problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we shouldn't have to be doing biblical counseling uh, to the same person all the time for the rest of their life on the same issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what he likened it to, there are some things that are normative like teaching. Yeah. That's always ongoing, yeah. and we are teaching the whole counsel of God. And all the believers are gathering together. They're hearing the teaching of the whole counsel of God, and they're hopefully making progress in their Christian life individually and corporately. Yeah. So he likened it to uh, a stream that is flowing. And so all Christians, they're flowing down the stream. Uh, everybody on their raft as they're following the Lord, doing what they're supposed to be doing. But every once in a while, somebody gets caught up in a little current, and their little raft goes off to the side, and they get stuck on the stream or the creek that's going down, and they just can't get out of there. Yeah. And they're hung up there. As the, the raft is spinning in circles, they can't get out by themselves, and they need help. Mm-hmm. And so another believer comes along and swims over, rafts over, and unhooks their raft that maybe was caught on a stick or a rock below, and it takes a little bit, and they got to figure it out, and they come up with a solution, and then they get that raft unloosed and towards the middle of the stream, and then they can go back to flowing down the river like every other Christian, mm-hmm. back to normalcy. And so that's what he likened biblical counseling to. It was uh, coming alongside those who have a unique need that needs personalized, individual, deliberate attention to overcome the fact that they have been sidetracked from the rest of the church with uh, a unique problem that they can't solve themselves. Right. 
And so uh, we give deliberate attention to that. And the idea is it's short term and we get them back on their own two feet so that they can keep growing in a healthy way. So that's the analogy. That's the picture. Uh, so we don't do long time uh, therapy forever, right. as is so common, mm-hmm. uh, where you see your therapist or your psychiatrist. How long are you going to see your – how long have you been seeing your psychiatrist? Five years. I've had somebody say 14 years. Yeah. 14 years? Yep. Once a month, 14 years. How long is that going to go on? I don't know. They didn't tell you? No. It's indefinite. Yeah. So this could go on the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's not what we're talking about with biblical counseling. So with that as an illustration, I'd say in the church, this is a specialized kind of intensive, personalized discipleship of people who have unique needs or problems. Yeah, and I think that's I I think that's a helpful uh, definition of biblical counseling, intensive discipleship because that's what we are doing. The 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 overarching umbrella of what the church is to be about, what pastors are to be about, what fellow Christians are to be about is the discipleship of one another. And this biblical counseling falls under that umbrella as an intensive or maybe even pointed discipleship, a particular problem, issue, it's serious, that person can't get themselves out of it, you come alongside and you you help them. So I think that's really helpful to see it as intensive or pointed or focused discipleship on whatever the problem or issue is. Now, Cliff, you know as well as I know that biblical counseling has been caricatured, I would say. Uh, this is not a true characteristic of real biblical counseling, although some biblical counselors are probably guilty of it, as we are all sinners and all have feet of clay, and we don't practice our craft as as well as we would like or as well as we should. But it's been caricatured as being not very compassionate. And I would like to hear you address that issue of biblical counseling. It's not compassionate. Um, You're someone who is simply distilling biblical truth to a person and without regard of their suffering in their life or other kinds of uh, issues that may actually increase or aggravate their sin or their suffering. Could you speak to that issue? Yeah, absolutely. I think for 50 years, Jay Adams got a bad rap, mm-hmm. primarily by fellow Christians, some very highly informed and educated Christians. I was surprised, mm-hmm. and I've heard it um, time and time again, and it goes something like this. Oh, Jay Adams, yeah, I don't like him. I don't like that form of counseling because he just tells people, uh, stop stop doing that and do this Bible verse. Right. That's the caricature I'm referring to. Exactly. Uh, and there's a lot of things wrong with that as though, number one, he doesn't listen to their concerns mm-hmm. or problems. He also doesn't have compassion, like you said. Uh, others have said that he doesn't believe in any kind of medication mm-hmm. or medicine at mm-hmm. all. Right. Uh, and all of those are false. Yeah. Totally mis- As a matter of fact, you read his book. You just read his book. Uh, and we would encourage every Christian to get competent to counsel by Jay Adams and not only have that in your library, but read it. Yeah, I've read that book about 10 times because I just need to keep going back yeah. to it. And he says in there um, that he believes medication can be necessary. He believes in doctors. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He just makes a distinction that uh, medicine is for uh, organic diseases that can be verified medically and physiologically and biologically yeah. and with a, a blood test and everything else. There's, so he's, uh, he's not opposed to all medication. He's just op- opposed to medicating someone thinking that medication can solve all of their problems, right. especially their spiritual problems yeah. or their behavior that the Bible directly addresses. So uh, that's a false caricature. And uh, 
and just this this idea that he just you tell the biblical counselor your problem, and then they just say, "Oh, well, you need to stop doing that. And you just need to do that, what this Bible verse says." When actually, again, if you read Jay Adams' book and excellent books that have been written on biblical counseling, uh, one of the first steps that you're trained to do as a biblical counselor is to listen. Yeah, that's such to a good be point. A, a sensitive listener, yeah. a careful listener, a thorough and complete listener. As a matter of fact, you are required to take notes while you're listening. Uh, as a biblical counselor, and use those notes and save those notes, and do your. As a matter of fact, I said in the last program that biblical counseling is all about trying to figure out what the counselee thinks. Yeah, I want to know what they think first and foremost. The only way I can figure out what they think is by asking questions. Right. So most of my time in biblical counseling is given to on the front end, asking the fellow believer or the counselee with the problem just a bunch of questions. Yeah. And some of their answers may breed about 10 more questions. <laughs> so I'm just going exhaustively with all these questions because I want to make sure I understand what they think because I'm trying to get a diagnosis, number one, accurately of their problem. Yeah. Is there a defect in their thinking or a wrong thinking that needs correction or uh, they need to be given more biblical truth mm-hmm. so they can think properly? Mm-hmm. But I don't want to circumvent the process by giving a diagnosis too soon when I don't have all the information or give the wrong solution uh, because I didn't ask enough questions. So uh, being an excellent listener, that's really step number one in biblical counseling. Like James 1.19 says, uh, brothers and sisters, everyone must be quick to hear and slow to speak. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really important point to make, uh, Cliff, because – like you said, you can't accurately diagnose the problem without careful listening. And it is possible to, for some uh, inexperienced counselor to jump into a situation and just start diagnosing all, the, all over the place without having enough data. Yep. And that would be akin to Proverbs, uh, guilty, being a guilty of Proverbs eighteen thirteen. If one gives an answer before he hears, it's his folly and shame. Yep. And so you can be a poor counselor. Because you haven't listened carefully. So we want to really help set aside that caricature of biblical counseling, that it doesn't listen. In fact, if it's going to be truly biblical, you actually have to listen very, very carefully so that you can make an accurate, truthful diagnosis and then apply the right remedy. Or you aren't really being an effective or a biblical counselor in that sense. Yeah. Do you know of anybody in biblical counseling who's ever given a premature answer before listening to get all the information? Uh, yes, I probably have in my counseling experience. Yeah, I was going to say the same with me. I look back and think, oh, man, there are so many cases where I just – I spoke too soon. Yeah, yeah. Didn't get all the information, yeah. spoke presumptuously, thought I knew all the answers, mm-hmm. and really probably complicated the situation. Yeah. That's same regretful. Here. Same here. Um, so we we've we want to address that character because we don't think it's fair, um, although we, we do acknowledge that it's it's possible that – uh, counselors have done this kind of counseling and, and, and messed up and so on, but we want to, as, as far as we're speaking of what Scripture calls us to in, in the counseling work, uh, we are to be careful listeners. We are to be compassionate. And this is an important piece, too, because you talk about we are we are addressing the mind. We want to help people to think God's thoughts after Him. But again, people then hear that and assume you don't care about people. You're just a matter. It's just a matter of of this kind of intellectual uh, thing where you're helping them think God's thoughts after them. You don't, and that 
that can't characterize the the biblical counselor either, because of anybody who people who are followers of the Lord Jesus, we will care about the person that we are counseling, that yeah. we will generally care for them. We care for their welfare. We care about um, any kind of suffering they brought to the table. We care about the suffering that's been produced out of their sin. We we care about them. We want to see them, like you mentioned that illustration earlier, we want to see them flowing freely and happily down that stream of the Christian life and not stuck in that eddy over in the corner and getting frustrated and, and in danger. So yeah. we, biblical counselors genuinely, at least they should, genuinely care uh, about their counselees. And yeah. if you are going to be truly biblical and follow Christ in these ways, then you will. Absolutely. Well, that goes back to Romans fifteen fourteen that I read in the last episode where the command there was to admonish one another. Yeah. And I referred that, – that phrase that Paul has in there where he says all Christians, you're full of goodness. Yeah. What is goodness? That's being led by the Spirit of God and you have goodness. That means you have a good attitude and you have a good uh, – perspective towards people. You love people. You're compassionate towards people. You want to do what's right and good. You care for them. So Paul is literally saying a prerequisite before you do admonish somebody is you need to pursue that goodness and act on that goodness Mm. in addition to the wisdom that you're full of goodness and wisdom. Those are the prerequisites before you admonish somebody. Otherwise, if you're just admonishing without those, you're just being heavy-handed. Yeah, absolutely. One thing we want to uh, address uh, and, and make clear because I would say that uh, this particular topic we're about to get into now is actually the distinctive of biblical counseling, and it is the sufficiency of Scripture. the The mark of uh, the biblical counseling movement is, in fact, this reliance upon the sufficiency of Scripture. So I want to talk about that, Cliff, if you would join me in that uh, for the next few minutes, because this really does distinguish biblical counseling from other in episode uh, or I'm sorry the previous episode in part one of this uh, series you had mentioned these different approaches to counseling and you'd mentioned counseling is really if you want to just kind of generalize it's just helping people uh, however however you're going to go about that it's, it's helping people they have a problem they come to you looking for a solution they give you their problem you and you help them find a solution and that can that happens across a myriad of different disciplines, and you'd mention uh, various ones, Christian psychology, and these are different methodologies or approaches to helping people. But what distinguishes biblical counseling from those other ones, you'd mention Christian psychology, you mentioned uh, secular therapy and these kinds of things, what really distinguishes even among Christians who are practicing what they call counseling is this idea of the sufficiency of Scripture. And so, just to define the sufficiency of Scripture, biblical counselors would say, and this may sound stark to some, but it really is uh, the, the, the approach of biblical counseling, and the, the, it's what actually influences the whole methodology of biblical counseling, is biblical counselors believe that in Scripture, you have everything you need to counsel another brother or sister in the Lord Jesus. In Scripture, you have everything you need in order to counsel another brother or sister in Christ, and you don't need to uh, resort to other sources of wisdom or instruction in order to counsel or instruct or admonish or encourage your brother or sister in the Lord in an effective way. So that is just kind of shorthand. That's how we would describe or define the sufficiency of Scripture. Any first thoughts on this idea of the sufficiency of Scripture, Cliff? 
Yeah, and another way to summarize it, and that sufficiency you're talking about, you have everything you need in Scripture and, you know, the critic might oh, so do you have everything uh, you need in the Bible to learn calculus or to learn automotive repair or to learn brain surgery? You know, just to be the devil's advocate, right, they'll right, throw right, it right. out. But, then, yeah, no, that's not what we're talking about. Right. Uh, you have everything in the Bible completely adequate and sufficient. I think I boil it down into two areas to address how the person thinks mm-hmm. and how they behave. Yeah. That's it of what God expects. Yeah. That's everything. And when you look at Jesus, the master, uh, who is the wonderful counselor, according to Isaiah 9, 6, uh, everything Jesus did is he addressed people's thinking and their behavior. Yeah. And that's what the Bible's sufficient for. Yeah. And you mentioned Christ. And so the sufficiency of scripture is not detached from our suffi- sufficiency in Christ. In fact, it is the appropriate um, result or consequence of our sufficiency in Christ. Christ is sufficient, and he is our sufficient Savior. He is our wonderful counselor. He's able to, as he said, he had sent his Spirit, and the Spirit is now our counselor, our teacher, uh, the one who admonishes and encourages us. And so we have all sufficiency in Christ, and he has given us his word. His wisdom, we have the very word of God, and I just we should just reflect on that more and more, that we have the actual words of God, the words of Christ, that Christ, our sufficient Savior, has given us. And you're right, it addresses the issues related to walking in, a, in Christian obedience and being pleasing to the Lord. The scripture provides everything that we need for that. You can consider a few important biblical texts in this regard. Uh, Psalm 19 is an important one, mm-hmm. talking about the attributes of of God. It is true. It's trustworthy. It's sure. Um, it uh, makes wise the simple. It's pure. So you have all of these ethical qualities. You have these epistemological qualities, you might say. All that means is that it's true. It's, you can rely on it to give you truth, to say things that are actually true about God and about your condition, about your problems, and so on. Second uh, Timothy three fifteen through 17 says that Scripture is profitable for teaching, it's profitable for rebuke, it's profitable for uh, correcting, it's profitable for training in righteousness. And here's the the kicker at the very end of, of verse 17, that the man of God may be equipped, equipped, ready for every good work, every good work. So if you consider your Christian life and you consider... Uh, all the things that you need to do in obedience to the Lord and, and walking faithfully to Him, those are those are the good works that you are to be about. Well, Scripture provides you everything that you need to yeah, fulfill like the those old, things. The old King James, I think, says, thoroughly furnished. Thoroughly furnished. The Word That's of God, good. the Scriptures provide those four components. Every Christian can be thoroughly furnished. Mm-hmm. And then Second Peter one eleven is a is an excellent one where uh, Peter says that the Lord has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And so, it uh, uh, starts in verse 3, actually. He says, uh, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And then he actually goes on, and uh, Peter goes on to talk about the kinds of virtues and disciplines that the Christian is to instill into their life by the help of the Holy Spirit so they might live a fruitful and productive Christian life. And his point right at the head of that is that God's given you everything that you need in order to do that, uh, Scripture and the Spirit included. And so Christians should have the confidence, therefore, that the Scripture is truly sufficient. And what I've found as I've gone through these things and, and planned 
to teach them is one thing I think is helpful is to help people see that there's no such thing as a neutral approach to counseling. Yep. So that anytime you counsel someone, that counsel, if it's about someone's marriage, their depression, their anxiety, their struggles with harmful behaviors and sin, whether you are a uh, secular counselor who's not coming from a biblical worldview or a Christian psychologist or, or whatever, a biblical counselor, that counsel, that verbal counsel you give is grounded in a particular view of God, a particular view of man, a particular view of man's problems, the particular view of man, the root of man's problems, a particular view of reality, uh, whether or not the, this uh, reality is material and immaterial, whether or not God exists. Um, and then finally, obviously, the sufficiency of Scripture and what you believe about Scripture. And so once you start to exhaust, and I mean exhaust, because I think once you start to exhaust what Scripture says about these topics, God, man, his composition, what he's made of, he's both body and soul, material and material, and man's problems, once you exhaust Scripture, what Scripture has to say about that, you are left to see that Scripture is truly sufficient. And not only that, but that it's not possible to have a neutral kind of counsel. Every counsel is either uh, it is either approaching biblical truth or it's uh, moving away from it. In any case, it's always coming from a particular set of assumptions on these major issues. That's true. We all counsel from a worldview. Yeah. So as a biblical counselor, I, my worldview, my assumptions are that you are a human being. You are made directly by God in his image. You are a person who is sacred and valuable and isn't just a machine, mm-hmm. but is a soul as well. And you will live eternally or as an immortal person. Uh, whereas if you're a secular psychologist who doesn't believe in the Bible, probably they believe you evolved from evolution. Yeah. You're nothing more than an animal or a highly developed animal, and you are nothing but a machine. Yeah. And once you die, you go into nothingness, and that's how they're going to counsel. And that has humongous practical implications. It does. And I think it's important to see that and to recognize that so that we're not naive, yep. um, that we recognize that there's there's kind of a myth of neutrality yep. that floats around, right. um, and uh, we can't allow that to... How to much stand. cyanide can you put in your coffee, Derek, before it affects you? Well, let me just say that I'm not going to try it. Yep. So Don't do that. Yeah. Because you'll kill yourself. Right. <laughs> I don't want to find out. So, integration... Integrating the wrong thing, mixing psychology, secular psychology with the Bible, dangerous. Yeah. Well, another uh, really helpful uh, uh, episode, Cliff, thank you so much for your insights. We want to point you back to withallwisdom.org. More resources there that you can check out and that will help you mature in your Christian life. Uh, making the most of the sufficiency of Scripture, the sufficiency of Christ. That's what we've tried to do here today. And until next episode, keep seeking the Lord in His Word. Mm -hmm.